if you've never been in on, on, on the project team designing the Disney ships, you wouldn't understand how incredibly difficult it is. everybody to this week's episode of the DCL Duo podcast brought to you by my path unwinding travel and Sam doesn't get any more exciting than this around here does it I mean we we actually I was thinking we have actually had one other former imagineer on this podcast that's our good True. friend Mikhail who worked in Disney Imagineering and Universal Imagineering for a little bit. Or whatever they call world. Imagineering at Universal. <laughs> they don't call it Imagineering. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Universal creative thinking. But we are excited today because we have another former Disney Imagineer, but more importantly, a former Disney Imagineer who worked on Disney Cruise Line, one of our favorite, favorite topics. And so I want to start by welcoming Theron to the show. Welcome, Theron. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. You've tapped into somebody who loves to talk about story and theme. And of course, we are huge Disney Cruise Line fans ourselves. How many times, Theron, have you been on the cruise line as a passenger then? Probably close to 20 cruises. Oh, wow. You're getting close to Pearl status there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they, yeah, we proved so much. We, there wasn't a pearl status, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> which which ships did you make it on, Theron? Um, we've been on uh, every ship except uh, the new one. We haven't been on the Wish yet. So my my family uh, gives me post-it notes daily about uh, book a cruise, Dad, book a cruise. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to get this right. You were the VP and portfolio, I'm going to get it wrong, owner or manager for DCL <laughs> for five years. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. It, uh, Imagineering loves their titles, right? So the official title was Creative Portfolio Executive. Basically, okay. it's a creative vice president that kind of partners with the operations team. And uh, we, at the time, I was responsible for um, all of the really fun stuff that uh, the Disney Cruise Line did. At that, at that time, they purchased a new island destination in the Bahamas, Lighthouse Point. We did lots and lots every year. We did a, a dry dock on the ships on the current fleet and, of course, designing the, the three new ships. So it was a really exciting portfolio. Lots going on. Lots and lots of design work. So Theron, one of we we have a we have a group of folks who support the podcasts and we solicited them for some questions. And I wanted to start off with one of those questions from one of our Patreon supporters. And they asked, how'd you get involved with Disney Cruise Line as opposed to some of the other areas at Disney? It's a really great question. I'll say that the Disney Cruise Line role that I was assigned to was actually the last role that I had uh, with the company. So I started as a theme park guy, quote unquote, way back in 1991, uh, helping to build Euro Disneyland, as it was called in the day. And um, I came out of film and television. So I was a sculptor and a, a painter and uh, grew into set design and all that stuff and made my way into the, the world of theme parks, uh, where all the cool stuff you did in film was now permanent. <laughs> you know, it wasn't torn down, thrown into the dumpster or whatever. It was it was real and permanent. So um, I had done uh, attractions and hotels, uh, big resort development projects, all the way through to what we call RD&E, retail dining and entertainment. Um, I was the creative executive over the Disney Springs project here in Orlando. I spent quite a lot of time overseas. Again, uh, Tower of Terror in Paris uh, parks and that whole land that was built and um, spent four years in Hong Kong, which was really fun. So the cruise line was kind of the culmination of all of that uh, uh, amazing, uh, cool stuff that I got to do 
in my early career. When you transitioned into working on DCL stuff, which we know includes Castaway Key, it includes the dry docks for the four existing ships, and then, of course, the design for the Wish and her two sister ships yet to be, uh, yet to come, the treasure we know and the other ship to be named in the future. Was that transition difficult? I imagine it's it's different designing attractions for land than it is designing, you know, the interior of a ship and figuring out what kinds of attractions or experiences are going to be able to fit within the confines of a, a floating vessel as opposed to an, an on-land Disney park or something like that. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Uh, I think it was a natural fit in a sense because the majority of my Disney career, in fact, all of my the new roles that I had every time I had a new role um, was something I had never done before. And that kind of suited me, my DNA, right? Because in a sense, I was 50% terrified and 50% excited uh, about the role. And that caused a level of focus and immediacy of, of growth and learning that, um, I don't know, for me, it just really worked well. Immense amount of pressure, of course, as always. And these type of um, experience design projects, uh, theme design projects are extremely dynamic, very cross-functional, lots of different disciplines and expertise all have to kind of play together nicely in the sandbox Mm -hmm. to deliver these kind of incredible experiences. So the discussion about the difference between a theme park type experience and then taking that brand experience uniquely Disney bottling it and then reproducing it in a way uh, in a completely different form when you start talking about islands and and a vessel that moves in open water there's so many different things that you have to consider i think you rightly said sam that it's an interior of a ship and of yep. course we all know and love the the style uh, that sort of golden age uh, style of the of the ship and um, and that that is representative of the DCL brand um, and there are a lot of exterior experiences that that guests do, but it is primarily an interior experience that you're building. And that's the really the exact opposite of a theme park, if you think about it. And a theme park is, even though there are interior experiences, attractions, shows, you know, you go inside of buildings, you do things inside of ride vehicles, et cetera. For the most part, it's a big, giant, open land. And and you 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 have that massive scale to play with. You can put distance between a guest and a feature. You know, think about you think about Expedition Everest, for example, right? You've got thousands of yards between the first view of Mount Everest and and the guests. Uh, you do you never have that on a ship. So right. you you have to take the approach of the design completely different and you and take into consideration that almost everybody that sails with Disney Cruise Line has been in a theme park environment. It, it is a challenge, but it's one that uh, that I really enjoyed. I think about, you know, Cars Land, for example, right? You stand at the entrance of Cars Land and you see down the street and you know that you're in Radiator right. Springs, right? And you see Stanley, the statue of Stanley down at the end of the street, under the street light, and that's an immersive experience, right? How, how does one create that same... I mean, we get those feelings when we walk into, I don't know, let's say, I'm going to say Star Wars Cargo Bay on the Wish. I'm not going to say hyperspace lounge on the wish and uh, 
I can <laughs> give you my criticisms of Hyperspace Lounge maybe another call on another day. But you really are in a same similarly immersive experience, but in much smaller scale. How does one think about what kinds of things you can put in those spaces in order to make them really immersive in the same way that Radiator Springs and Cars Land and Disneyland is? Well, the thing about a, a theme park venue when you start or, or water park or, or even resort development, if you're thinking of it in those terms, you fill that with experiences. And, and because it's Disney branded, those experiences are uh, collectively under one overarching story. That's what makes a theme park. Right, a collection of rides that don't relate to each other in one venue is not a theme park, even though many of them are labeled that way. Those are amusement parks. Those are great. I'm a roller coaster enthusiast, but that's uh, nobody should be confused that that's not a theme park. Just get that out of the way. When you have all that land to deal with and all that great um, open expansive space, you choose stories that benefit from that expansion of ex- of that space. You tend to tell world based stories like Avatar. Right? Right, like uh, Asia, you know, you're, 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 or, or Epcot, right? You're, you're telling these big, giant stories that require space and require multiple forms of entertainment to enable to accurately communicate that. The ship, in a sense, is an attraction designer's dream because, in an attraction, especially in a legacy brand like Disney or Universal, is the attraction is a building and a ride system that you're literally funneling thousands of people through an hour. So the level of intimacy that you can achieve in an attraction from an experience design standpoint can only get so intimate, right? Now, there, there's some that, that are not designed to be intimate, but, but you know what I'm saying, right? The ultimate idea of an experience is an intimate moment with your favorite characters in your favorite scenes, being the hero of your favorite story. That is a customized, personalized experience for the guest. And you just can't do a lot of that in a theme park. You can do that on a ship because Mm -hmm. it's a vessel with a limited number of of passengers that um, you have an intimacy with the passengers over the course of a much longer time period. So there's benefit and there's danger. The benefit is you get to you, we as the as the designers, right? The Imagineering team as the designers get to think about how to build an environment that is intimate in nature. It doesn't have to be voluminous. Doesn't have have to be big. And the people that you're going to fill that environment, it's a controlled number. You don't have 35,000 people in a park one day and 17,000 people in the park the next day. You have a controlled number of people and the ratio of, of guests to crew is quite high, right? You have a, mm-hmm. a high level of crew to guest ratio. So your service is naturally better. From a Disney branded perspective, the ships always get ranked very high because of those mm-hmm. metrics. And as experienced designers, we take into consideration those environments and the mindset of the guests going in to get the most out of those interior spaces. No, I love that because the cargo bay is telling this this smaller story about the creatures in this Star Wars world, right? Right. Versus telling the entire story of Batu that you get in Galaxy's Edge. So it's it's a exactly. really there's a big contrast there of telling sort of this micro story versus this macro world story. I love that. And the danger, I realize I didn't mention this. I'll just jump on this really quick. The danger is that nobody goes to Space Mountain and spends seven days. 
<laughs> right? And it wasn't designed for that purpose, but I think all of us would agree that the theme and the design wouldn't stand up to the scrutiny of seven days. So the ships, in a sense, have to withstand the scrutiny of Disney's highest fans. So the materials can't be fake. You know, the, the inlaid stone has to be marble. It's, it's all of those things. The experiences have to be a level higher than the theme parks because of that level of, of scrutiny. In a sense, you're living with the product, right? So I'm interested. One difference that I see too in designing a theme park is that you're taking, I think I heard you see on another podcast, you know, it's the escapism. You're taking people out of the reality of their daily life and putting them into a themed mm-hmm. land, a setting, a ride, an experience. How do you think about that when you're talking about a cruise ship where folks actually, in some cases, want a connection to the outside environment that they're in? They want to feel that connection to the ocean or the destination in addition to the sort of escapism they're experiencing. So how do you think about the balance between the experience on board and pulling them out of the reality while staying connected to the reality and the environment around them? It's such a great question because it, it, it goes to address the complexity of what, of what the ship is, uh, the Disney ship. Now, the, the cruise industry is massive, right? It's been around for decades yeah. and decades. And for the, in, in the most general sense, people go on a cruise. All of them are similar. Uh, some want to just go and get drunk. Some want to, you know, escape. Some want to, you know, travel the world. Some, you know, there's, there's varying degrees of why you would do that. The unique thing about Disney passengers, Disney fans who cruise with Disney is they not only want the benefit of, of being on the sea and, and have this great escape and you're going to exotic destinations, but you also have all of the trusted brand elements that you would expect from Disney. And in a sense, you have them distilled in a much more spirited manner, right? It's the richest form of the Disney brand, I would argue, because because of all the points that we just made. I think that you have passengers that choose to sail with with Disney because they have a family. They want to lean into the brand. They know that there there's a high high level of trust for the brand. So you know they know their kids are not only going to be taken good care of, but their kids are going to have fun at their age levels. It's it's designed specifically for them. The parents are going to enjoy their time. They got their own me time. They've got family time, and and I and you have the added benefit of going to these exotic locations. Again, you can't do that in a land based resort that is the exotic location and you don't you don't move and so i right. i think there's the there's the variety of that there's the surprise and delight of um why would you book another cruise well this one's going to alaska the last one went to aruba then the next one i'm going to is the you know the baltic so and then the the ships take on the flavor and the spirit of the destinations in in many cases and and that just makes some memories that you you can't make any other way I'm curious too. Uh, this we're talking about parks and ships and the synergies. How much of a feedback loop is there? As an outsider's perspective, it's it's interesting. I think there's this perception that there's some silos within the business over at Disney, but you see these moments where you know oh, we've got Star Wars land, you know, that opens up. Now we've got the hotel. Now we're seeing Star Wars elements on the ship. Is there a sort of feedback loop between the different pieces of Disney to help kind of inform like a consistency in that brand design and thinking? Absolutely. Know that um, the company and I parted ways in 2020. So sure. 
I don't I don't know the details of how everything is managed now and you know the results of of covid on our world and the and the global economy um has shown that things have been reorganized quite a lot so I'm I'm not speaking to a current condition I can only speak to the way that it was in the 20 plus years when I worked there you cannot get a brand like Disney and be as consistent as it is across such a broad amount of channels and not have very talented people who are managing all of this and and synergizing it. I know that when I was there, especially as a senior exec, that's one thing that we work really, really hard to avoid is the formation of silos, right? That that's yeah. you, you that's the death of an organization. Um and, and especially an organization or a brand like Disney, you can't have the 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 experience that you're designing be independent from the people who operate the experience because they're one and the same. I often um, I do a lot of lecturing at universities and I love teaching the next generation of narrative experience designers. And one of the things that I say is, you know, you could spend hundreds of millions or billions of dollars on the coolest physical space and fill in the blank as to what that is, a theme park, a hotel, a whatever. If that thing is not populated with frontline employees who understand the story, who care about the story and has a, have a really good culture about how to deliver the best service, then that thing will be limited because it'll be empty. It'll just be a cool thing that you look at like a museum. So I know that Disney takes that approach in everything, not just from a brand perspective, but to um, maintain the level of service and and not to erode the brand, right? That's the worst possible scenario is ro- erode your own brand. Right. I mean, if yeah. you have like a Worlds of Marvel restaurant like you do on The Wish, you don't want to tell a story in that restaurant that then conflicts with what you're doing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? That's right. It, it, doesn't, That's right. it doesn't have to track with a particular movie necessarily, but you have to have consistency, right? Like uh, Ant-Man can't have different powers on The Wish than he has right. in the movies. That's right. Well, each one of those uh, intellectual properties has a brand manager, if you will, that that uh, works from Imagineering with that brand. So no matter how that brand, that character, the you know Marvel Universe, the uh, Lucasfilm, etc., how those stories are interpreted from the screen in a what amounts to a 2D format gets extrapolated and told in a 3D living immersive way. There's a lot of translation that takes place and the, that uh, IP owner at Marvel needs to be sure how that that IP story is told in a different format and in a sense for a different owner, which might be Paris or Shanghai or whatever, they need to make sure that it's represented in a, in a way that's that's super consistent. So yeah, all of those individuals are in place. And then the, the question that I almost always get is, you know, why do you close down things like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride? You know, why why do you do that? And and I think it feeds into a little bit of, the, of this question is that one thing that I, I know that um, is a challenge with physical locations like the theme parks, for example, example, and this is across the board with all legacy brands, is how long do you leave that thing in that condition, right? Some mm-hmm. would suggest if you went to Universal Studios and you walked into the Terminator, it's tired, right? It's it, What are we on, Terminator 7 or something now? <laughs> it, 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 so it's tired. It's a story that doesn't necessarily hold up as well as it did when the movies were being released. It was the same thing with Mr. Toad, right? The Disney operations team does daily almost surveys of guests and those 
experiences that begin to wane in popularity begin to become a identified as an opportunity for bringing something that is popular now, a, a show that's streaming on Disney+, Plus, a new character product coming out in one of the existing franchises or something. And that's an opportunity to bring that in because land, let's face it, land, you know, lands doesn't grow anywhere. You know, you're not growing in land <laughs> size. And same with the ships, right? You, you can't just go scab a, a building on the side of the ship. So you're dealing with existing spaces and they have to be on the, in the case of the ship and a dry dock, it has to be refurbished in a way that represents the freshest face of the brand as a whole. That's why dry docks become so important is that you, you always are keeping that product fresh and new and relevant to a very, what amounts to a very broad demographic. I always joke and say that the Disney demo is four to 94, right? right. And you, you could have grandpa, grandma, the parents, the kids, you know, a multi-generational cruise and everybody on that Cruise has to find something that resonates with them on that journey. Otherwise, you know, yeah. Disney's lost. How do you deal with the the diehard Disney fan, though, who says, well, I want you to give me new things as long as you don't change anything, right? So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do you sort of manage a, a dry dock or a changed theme park experience when you've got these sort of loyalists to the Disney brand who who hate when you take away something they love? Uh, that's a great question. I'll speak in, in more general terms now that I have my own company and, I'm, and I work with businesses all over the world in many different ways. Not Actually, I don't do theme parks anymore uh, or ships. One thing about fans that's fantastic for a brand or for a business is it, they're very important. You have to keep them as a part of the brand. Word of mouth, the millions of dollars of value and marketing value that comes from a word of mouth, is you, it cannot be replaced. But that said, and no disrespect to any of your listeners, fans can be the most difficult part to manage of any brand because they love what the product is, but they're also your most discriminating uh, uh, demographic. And, and in a sense, in that way, you can never do it perfectly as a brand. And I'm just saying that broadly. I, I don't, nobody at Disney that I've ever worked with says that, you know, we can't do it perfectly as a brand, but there's a general knowledge that the fans love it so much and they have such a psychological picture of what the characters, the stories and the worlds are like that is has come alive because they've seen it in a streaming format, a film format, a TV format, video format, game, for something. They've seen it in some 2D digital way. They've visited it in a dimensional way, in an immersive way. And in a sense, that's locked in this vision, this that now becomes my space. It resonates with me. So in a sense, you could never do better than what is built in the fan's mind as that universe that they love so much. And and that's okay. Inadvertently, fans may complain about something when you launch it, but they love it anyways, right? They love it. They wish we could do better here and wish we could do better there. And and I think that largely Disney addresses that really well, uh, I, I would say. I, obviously, there's sometimes that they don't do it well. Obviously, there's times when Disney fails and doesn't do it right out of the gate, you know, according to many different sources. But one thing I've always said about Disney is that they work hard to come back and make that right. Uh, look what they did with DCL, right? How long? I'm sorry, not DCL, uh, DCA, right? Disney's California Adventure, right? It came out. Largely, fans were disappointed. It didn't feel at the same caliber. Well, what ended up happening? They came back and spent millions and millions and millions of dollars and, and kind of gave it a new face, a new level. So I think that's one thing that's really cool. It's our, Brian and my favorite part yeah. now. <laughs> awesome. Oh, yeah, our favorite. Yeah, of, of all of the, you know, if you, all of the US parks, we yeah. will both tell you that DCA is our favorite over Disneyland 
Linkin Park nice. over, you know, Epcot, all of that. So fans don't like to talk about it and guests don't really like to talk about it. And Imagineers don't really like to talk about it. But at the end of the day, uh, it's a business. What we're, what Imagineers do isn't art. It's design. Uh, they use art in the design, but design is the whole process is to make money, is to solve a problem, is to create a functioning, you know, environment. So Disney will make it right because it's a, it's their brand, and and ultimately it equates to you know a financial proposition. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the hazard of what you do or what Disney does, I should say, what Disney does is create emotional connection through storytelling. So when you rip that emotional connection away from somebody, it, some people are going to make a strong connection, and when you rip it away, that's going to be a, a hard a hard thing for them. I, w- I want to so ask true. something since we're talking about. Brand. I heard you on another podcast. You talked very eloquently about the fact that you have to balance these competing interests when you're doing design. You've got the imagineering point of view and that design forward thinking, that brand thinking. And then you've got the business side thinking. And I was curious to get your reaction. I know you didn't work on it, but we were talking pre-show just ever so slightly about it. It feels like the brand got deprecated a bit with the purchase of the global dream. Because I heard you on this other podcast, again, I think I was like, oh my gosh, I 100% agree. Those ships that we have today, up through the wish and into the treasure and beyond, they're iconic. They have their ocean liners, they're yachts, they're, they're sailing vessels. Uh, and I heard you say that you know people come out, and we experience this ourselves, people come out from the other ships to stand on deck, watch them sail in. You know right. when you're looking at a Disney ship, the only other ships that even come close are like the canard, uh, sort of classic ocean liner ships in my book. And then I look at the Global Dream and I look at some of the art that they've put out there with like six funnels on top and all this stuff. And I'm like, that does not look like a Disney ship. And is it just a case you think of the business getting ahead of the brand a little bit or the, the business interest getting ahead of the, the brand a little bit? Or what, what were your thoughts when you saw some of that stuff? You you just said that I answered something eloquently. So I want to make sure and, and do that because this is, <laughs> you know, this isn't um, a, my, a show on my opinion. So yeah. um, there, I, and of course I wasn't in the room, right? The, the the worst sure, thing is sure. armchair quarterbacks on Monday morning. It, you know, I would have, and they could have, and we should have, and nobody, nobody but the people in the room who made the decision understand why they did it. But that said, if you've never been in on on, a, on the project team designing the Disney ships, you wouldn't understand how incredibly difficult it is. And I mean, and I'm not just speaking to for the sake of drama. I've designed hundreds of millions of square feet in my career in all kinds of different places all over the world. Fitting the program that needed to fit inside of the Wish and and that the Triton class was insanely difficult to maintain the profiles of the ship. So the the reason you see cruise ships that look like floating refrigerators is because it is a shape that allows you to fit the maximum amount of spaces inside. When you've got an elegantly curved uh, stern and a very drawn out bow and and very tapered lines that are very, very carefully constructed and balanced, it is extremely difficult to just, you can't just glom stuff on. So that's one of the reasons uh, for the great pride that I have in the team that actually designed um, the Triton class. And I'm not just mean the things that you see. Those are incredibly cool, the things you experience. The ship itself, and I I stand by this toe-to-toe with anybody, I think is the best designed Disney ship in the fleet because, and that's not because of the color choices or the theme choices, or they chose Moana and they didn't change. It's none of that. Those are all cool. But the core of the ship itself was designed for the business 
to maximize the business and to maximize the unique way that Disney Cruise Line guests interface with the ship. And we spent so much time to get that right. And uh, so I have a huge amount of pride for that. So comments on the new ship that was announced. I was completely set aback when that was announced. I, I cannot imagine the set of circumstances that would ever allow that purchase to happen in my mind. I Even if they got the ship for free, I think that it poses such a challenge to the Disney Cruise Line brand that I think that in my own mind, and this is in my opinion only, that it is irrecoverable from a Disney brand perspective. I don't think it can be made in the image of the brand. You know, if if you're going to go that far outside, and this is any company in the global economy, if you're going to go that far outside of your brand for business reasons or whatever, we got a deal, whatever it is, then then vary the brand, make it a different class, make it a different, you know, do something different. And that way it doesn't have a stand a chance of eroding a 20 plus year old brand that has a huge following. Again, my opinion only. The other challenge too, I'll just throw out there is I believe, I don't know for a fact, I believe it was a ship that was designed for the Asian market. We spent a lot of time at Disney Cruise Line when I was there talking about the possibility of expanding the business into the Asian market. So we did a fair amount of research with the shipyard and our nautical design team as to what would a ship designed to be in that market, what would it look like? What would it need to have? And it is very different from the ships, the fleet that exists now. Just the design, very, very different. You have to have smoking on board. You'd have to have a casino. You'd have to have several different things that are just completely outside of the Disney brand. Knowing that that ship was designed for an Asian market, there's going to have to be some uh, lots of blow torches and, and steel saws, I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. My outsider's opinion. <laughs> Yeah, or or the answer to your question, right? I mean, the answer to your question. I think a lot of speculation in the community that that ship will head to Asia, expand into Asia, and if that's the case, then maybe the way they preserve the brand is that's the ship that sails in Asia, and the other ships and the ships that follow will sail sail elsewhere yeah. to preserve the brand a little bit. I want to move us into the wish a little bit that you you sort of you know highlighted. Let me start with this question. You mentioned you'd go toe to toe with anyone on the design of that ship, and I'm so I'm so curious about some of the spaces on board. I don't I don't necessarily get into particulars right away, but I'm sure you've heard the chatter. This the, the wish has is interestingly enough I feel like been one of the most divisive things that Disney has done within the <laughs> Disney Cruise Line community. It is people love it or they hate it, and there's not a lot of in between. And I I can't think of too many people who are like I I hate the fantasy. They may not love the fantasy. There are a bunch of people who do. You know, you said you design these ships. These experiences. Tell him what category we're in. Brian. We love it. So- we love the wish. I I 100 agree and can't wait to hear about some of your 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 favorites on board. But what I wanted to ask is, you know, you mentioned you design these ships, there's there things that people are going to scrutinize. And so I think, you know, going in, there's going to be a level of scrutiny on a brand new ship like this. But did you expect it to be as divisive as it landed? Because it's amazing to me the amount of, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, or I love it, I love it, I love it. <laughs> well, what's interesting about your question, and it reveals uh, something to me that I, I don't I don't, I haven't tracked any of the chatter. I, I just, I just don't follow it. I mean, to yeah, be completely yeah. honest, my, my world right now is so extremely busy with so many other things on an, on the other side of the world that I'm really loving and having fun with. I just haven't gone back and looked uh, at that. But what you say doesn't surprise me. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why. 
All I can tell you is I, I can't tell you the way that the ship was finished and the way that she sailed out and the decisions that were made yeah. after I left. We did, uh, under my leadership, set a, a process and we set a you know a way to move forward. A lot of decisions and in the the big COVID lockdown nightmare, some of those things may have changed. But I know that from our perspective, w- one of the things that we worked on in the very beginning and the decision that I was a part of was these, we have a big enough fleet of ships that to duplicate spaces just doesn't make sense. The ships should should stand on their own individually. Uh, They should have their, not only their own name, but they should have their own motif, their own design styling. I mean, we we do that at Walt Disney World, right? You got what, parks, four parks you can go to, water parks, golf courses, all these different hotels, and everyone is a signature design and experience. The ships should be the same thing. Uh, um, and why would you sail on the Wonder? Well, I'll just pick a pick a ship. Well, you got a lot of different reasons. You have unique show on the Wonder. You can't get yeah. anywhere else unless they've duplicated it. You have Tiana's, right? Doesn't exist on any place else. Tiana's space. The uh, Wonder has a unique itinerary, right? It goes to Alaska. It does some interesting work in the Gulf. It does these things. So now you've, uh, uh, if you create every ship in the fleet with a unique identity, and and some things are franchises, right? Palos, right? It's it's mm-hmm. there's a there's a, a, a duplication of effort there. It's a story that's told in many different ways, if you could look at it that way. And that, yeah. that's great. It, it creates a franchise. It creates reliability and that kind of thing. So I think that was a very important distinction in, in the Triton class and, and what we were creating. And that each of the three ships uh, would go further than the four original ships, further in yeah. saying that the name, the motif, the Stern character and the Atrium character would all tie into the same concept. It would all evoke the same spirit of that together where the original four ships don't do that. You have a Stern character, you've got a lobby character, you've got, you know, a design motif, you've got Art Deco, Art Nouveau, and it's cool, it's fun, but they don't tie into each other really. So that was a decided difference uh, on the three new ships. And the other reason I'm not surprised uh, to hear you say that is because we grew the ship um, by how many? 50,000 gross tons or something like that. It's got several more decks. I think largely the audience feels that it's a bigger ship. I think the company was getting some feedback in early days after the ships were announced. And some people would say they would you know, stop you in the hall if you knew that you worked with Imagineering in the hall of the ship. Um, and they would say, we don't want bigger ships. We want smaller ships. You know, you can't decommission the wonder and the magic, you know, because they're at their age when you typically would decommission those ships within the industry. I mean, Disney takes care of them way better than anybody else in the industry. So it's not surprising that they're, you know, not on a beach somewhere getting chopped up. It makes sense. But but the guests love those two ships because of the intimacy, because they're so small. I personally witness a lot of pushback uh, about the ships being bigger. So I don't know if that's one of the key things that people complain about or not, but um, that's one that we heard early days. Hey, DCL Duo fans, you know, we get the question all the time, should I use a travel agent to book my next Disney cruise or should I just book with Disney directly? And I'm going to tell you, if you have that question in the back of your mind right now, you should stop what you're doing and head over to mypathunwinding.com slash DCL Duo. The folks over at My Path Unwinding provide an amazing service. They are so knowledgeable and so friendly. We rely on them ourselves to book our family vacations and they provide an amazing service. And the best part is you don't pay anything extra for it. Disney, other tour providers, 
riders and other cruise lines have built the cost of their commission into their pricing. So if you're booking directly, you are just paying that money back to the provider when you could be spending it on the kind of service you would get from My Path Unwinding Travel. You've heard from their agents on our show. They are so knowledgeable, so giving of their time. They know so much about Disney Cruise Line, Sailing Concierge, other cruise lines, other all-inclusive vacations and adventures by Disney that if you have a vacation in mind, they are the ones to book it for you. So again, head over to mypathunwinding.com slash Duo so they know we sent you their way. Thanks, My Path Unwinding, for sponsoring the show. And with that, back to our episode. It's interesting, and it le- it's a living, it leads me to my next question, which is, and I actually want to come back at some point, because I do have a question for you about that point, about people loving the intimacy <laughs> of the small ships. But it, it leads me to this question, which is, it, f- it feels like, so on the this other show I listened to you on, you mentioned that a lot of what you do when you start this like new class of ship is you really do that like deck layout planning, right? And... From there, that gets does that's design that gets repeated throughout, so that you know what you're really doing is altering what fills the space, not necessarily the space itself. And I think one of the big kind of things that people have said about the wish is it's interesting, it's bigger, but it's got a lot of smaller spaces. And I wonder, at some level, hearing you talk about the intimacy, if that was kind of an intentional design choice from the standpoint that like we'll create, we'll take the big ship, but create the intimacy on board. The the feedback that we've heard from different people is, but making those smaller spaces with so many people, sometimes the spaces get really oversubscribed and so they feel too full or too cramped. And so I'm just curious, I guess maybe two questions here. One is, as you think about that repeatable design across, how much ability do you see Disney being able to take to to, to respond to some of that guest feedback and say, let's figure out a way to kind of reconfigure space or is that really locked? And then two, was that an intentional design choice to try to marry the intimacy into the larger ship at some level? Yeah, I would say intimacy, but also um, some other choices from a business perspective to be able to do that and to allow flexibility. And, and I can I can describe that. Um, with regard to the process, one thing that's interesting that I learned, I, I didn't know until moving into you know the, the whole world of cruise ship design and fabrication. In a sense, it's it's a probably the way that your audience would understand it the best is if you were are ordering a car from a manufacturer. And, you know, did you did the Mercedes experience, you order a Tesla, whatever, you know, you pick the, the the motors and the wheel type and the interior. You pick all those things. They have a plan to build a car. The shipyard's the same way. So when Disney told the shipyard, hey, we want to build some new ships, they the shipyard, and I'm oversimplifying, looks through the calendar and says, hey, we got a ship building window this year. And and this year year, five years from now or whenever, because they're they're all stacked up. So Disney right. says, great, we're, we'll buy that slot. They don't necessarily buy the ship at that moment. They're buying that slot. And then they based it on the last ship that the shipyard did, which is a fantasy. So now you've got a, a basis for your design to start with, uh, and you can base all your costing and complexities on. And then now you've got a time that that can be built. So then you structure your team, you put the whole thing together. And the the format that you're talking about, uh, Brian, is called a, a GA. It's the general arrangement, GA. So think of that as all the decks are figured out as a floor plan. And then on each deck is a box. And the box, think of it like a shipping container. I know that's a mm-hmm. dumb analogy, but it's a box and that box is a space. Could be two decks high, could be three decks high, could be very wide, it could be very long. So in a sense, it's a collection of decks and boxes and you have to figure that out. Now, the decks on top of each other, there's a relationship between them. So there's vertical uh, circulation. Deck one relates to deck two, which relates to deck three, et cetera, which is extremely different than a theme park or any land-based space, even more different than a hotel. And then there's also horizontal 
uh, circulation on every deck. So the GA figures all of that out. It doesn't necessarily say what what each box is, uh, but you know this is the atrium, these are the room, these are the staterooms, etc. So when we had all of that figured out, we lock in with the shipyard what all the ships are going to be built like, and then we the the team decides. Because you're allowed in the contract a level of change between Mm -hmm. ships. So you identify the spaces that you want the changes to be able to take place in. And you identify the level of changes that are acceptable in each space. So, for example, you know that there's a different design motif on every ship. I think that's generally publicly knowledged. How do you do that, right? In the atrium, you're not going to move the staircase to another wall, right? The staircase stays there. But the carpet's probably going to be different. And maybe you'll choose a different kind of marble. Maybe the hand railing is different, the wall cover. Etc. So the chandelier definitely different, and the the team identifies with the shipyard what elements change between ships. Now, if Disney comes in and says these spaces didn't work, we need to move these boxes around. Absolutely, can be done, no problem. It's just a it just comes at a cost. To that point, I imagine, and tell, correct me if I'm wrong, but. Obviously, you can't. It's going to be a big cost to change the placement of the atrium or the grand hall, as they call it on the wish. Mm-hmm. Changing maybe a wall or a few walls in spaces that might be, let's say, adult bar spaces, changing the placement of a wall, as long as you're not changing the location of the bars and flipping them with where the staterooms are. I would imagine that's probably within the scope of, of the kinds of changes that can be made from ship to ship. Is that fair assessment? Sounds like that would be reasonable the way that you presented it. But what you realize is that every single deck structurally is based on the wall placements beneath it. Mm -hmm. So if you've already made or or on top of it, right? So all those decks, all that weight and everything and the way that it's designed, because remember, this is a vessel that moves and has to deal with and survive some pretty radical forces at times, right? And that's Mm -hmm. not a slight on the captain or anything like that. But you know, you're you're in the ocean, right? I mean, it can be it can be a real beast sometimes. So you can't just move a wall because there might be plumbing that affects the four or five decks uh, overhead. There might be electrical, there might be structural elements that are in that wall that if you move that, it affects four other walls. And that was the the major, major challenge in going from the baseline fantasy to the wish, right? Uh, the Triton class was every time you touched a wall, every time you moved something, you spread structure in a different way and impacted things very differently. It very, very much is a Jenga puzzle. And it's mm-hmm. totally different than land-based construction where you roll into a green field, <laughs> you pour the footers and you start with the walls and, and you know, kablam, there you are with a, with a killer attraction. It just doesn't happen that way in, in ships. <laughs> yeah. So I have another question that actually came from some of our our Patreons, our 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 most loyal supporters of our podcast, I, I just nice. want to I want to make sure I ask you a couple of these questions. And, and the first one is: Were there elements that ended up in the Wish and in the, probably the Triton class in general that came based on feedback that you that you received through the company from you know Disney Cruise Line uh, cruisers about the prior ships? Right? Like, was there something that people either didn't like? or didn't function well on, let's say, the dream or the fantasy or even the magic and the wonder um, that then was translated into a design element or a change that we then see on the witch? Great question. I would say in general, the Disney company, it's been my experience over 20 years that the Disney company listens very intently to all of the guests, guests, let 
letters and feedback. The Disney Springs project that I led, for example, many of the design criteria that we used to to design that billion dollar project was verbatims from guests. So uh, the Disney Cruise Line, as we went into building, starting the the whole uh, Triton class and everything, the Disney cruise line had already been in operation, I think almost 20 years. You know, it was 10 years since the fantasy had come out. And those were the fantasy and dream of the two newest ship that had quite a lot of changes from the original ships, the classic ships. So there was a lot of feedback. And one story I have to illustrate that is the atrium elevators right? That that midship elevator banks. I think the way that it came across to, to the Imagineering team was that there's a lot of congestion in the fantasy and the dream at those midship elevators. Mm-hmm. And we would, you know, in, in general, there's congestion. We identified it as midship elevators and um, we need to relieve that. How do we relieve that congestion? So when we launched into it, we had, we started with a hypothesis and then we went about proving if the hypothesis was, was right, you know, was going to move the needle or not. I, I was of the mindset that we should remove the midship elevators and that we should take the forward and aft elevators and move them closer in so the ship looks almost like a third, a third, and a third. And um, part of the rationale for that was psychological. And if there's one thing that experienced designers know is the psychology of the guests that they're designing spaces for. And I've experienced this myself, right? You walk into the atrium, ladies and gentlemen, it's the skis family, and everybody claps. And the first thing you see is the elevator bank. And as human beings, we're creatures of habit. That's how I circulate, right? So every time on the ship, anywhere you walk, that's your elevator because that's the first thing you saw. And I'm having too much fun. So why do I seek out another way? I just said that I just think that's so interesting. I would have never thought of that psychological element of it, right? I mean, the fact that it is one of the first things you see when you enter on the four original ships, you really do. You see that elevator bank right there when your family name gets called in. That's like um, you're like blowing my mind in this moment. <laughs> that's 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 what you that's what you think about. I mean, psychology is very very powerful. I mean, when you're building, uh, and and Brian, you said it when we opened. Uh, what we do uh, as as narrative experience design. Is right. Um, in this case, it's called Imagineering at Universal. It's Universal Creative and other parts of the world. You know that that's what we do. We're creating an experience that has an emotional connection with an audience, not a not a group of guests, not a not a group of customers. It's an audience. Audiences can have fans, and that's what we're talking about here. There's a psychology attached with building an emotional connection to a physical experience, and that feeds so much into the design process that it's hard to teach others to grasp that, right? So that's what was at play in this instance. Well, we, you know, you couldn't convince a business the size of DCL with the complexity of DCL, you know, it's my gut and I'm telling you it's psychology. Well, they're like, well, it makes sense, but let's do some studying. So we modeled it. We had industrial engineers look at it and did a bunch of circulation studies and everything. And what they found out was, I'll be darned, that's really true. We can handle um, circulation to forward elevator and to aft elevator. If we expand them, we Put, we put an extra, I think it was an extra two elevator shafts, it may have been more than that, on each side. I think we went to a bank of, of eight uh, instead of just six, I think if I remember correctly. And, and what that does is it created a really cool circulation pattern on the ship that actually relieved congestion. So really proud of that fact. So what you do in that moment is you say, hey, we've got a space available, which is impossible on a ship, right? 
So one of the biggest events on any Disney cruise is the atrium events, right? And and the reason that's really unique on a Disney cruise, because I've, I've sailed on so many different other cruise lines. What's unique about Disney is that they have a dining time and a show time, right? Early dining, late dining, early show, late show. What that does is it creates a traffic pattern within the ship of those 6,000 passengers, whatever the passenger count is, right? That are moving in a very predictable way throughout the ship. They're getting dressed. They're going to dinner. They're dropping off their kids. They're doing their own thing. They're going to the kids. You know, So it's a very discernible pattern. And one of the things that happens in the atrium, as you guys know, is the character moments, right? They have basically performances. So when we made the decision about the elevator, then the team immediately said, well, what should we put in its place? And it was unanimous that we should create a more formal performance environment there, a space, not just for entertainment and for characters, but so that you could do a whole lot of things in there, building a lot of flexibility from, you know, where a shore excursion group might meet to get a briefing before they disembark the ship all the way through till you know, Jack's uh, diaper dash, right? Where you got the, the little guys racing. So that was really exciting because now you're, you've come up with the functional solve that helps mm-hmm. the reality of moving people in an efficient way. People get cranky when they're not moved in an efficient <laughs> way. And, and that doesn't matter where you go. It's not just Disney. If you go to the mall and you're standing 20 minutes in line to go to the bathroom, somebody didn't design that right, right? Mm -hmm. So we made a decision that was functionally right, but then it provided an opportunity to create an experience that reinforced the brand. And uh, so anyways, that was a win-win all the way around. So I'll tell you, that is one of the controversies. Some people love that and some people hate it, meaning the removal <laughs> of an elevator bank. But um, I appreciate the fact that we there actually are more elevators on the Wish than there are on the other ships. I don't have a problem with that change. Uh, I, and I love the grand the grand atrium that we end up or the grand hall that we end up with as the atrium space. I think that's a beautiful one. One other question I had that's tr- sort of similar uh, or sort of piggybacking on this is if you can tell us, was was there similar rationale for changing up the adult-only spaces on board the Wish in this in the way that they are spread throughout more throughout the ship? There are some clusters of adult spaces on, I believe it's on deck five. However, different from the four original ships where you've got like, you know, this clear cluster of, you know, the district, Europa, and after hours, right? These are spaces where it's all of the adult venues are all clustered together on those ships. And we've got a fairly significantly different arrangement on the wish. And did that come from the same thought of of this relieving congestion or spreading people out in sort of just a practical way? It was a very purposeful design uh, element because uh, design approach, because again, when you look at the, the the family groups or the groups of individuals that sail with Disney and you examine the way that they move in a traffic pattern throughout the ship going from space to space, right? Um, not a lot. Uh, some people explore, right? But once, you, once you've kind of sailed before, you really have your, your spaces that you go. Today, we're going to shop. Tomorrow, we're going to look at a movie. We're going to go listen to the person in the theater talk about diamonds that we're going to buy in the next port, you know, et cetera. Hey, there's a, a you know, a, a free spa demonstration. So people have a pattern at which that they move throughout the ship. And to be able to satisfy the diversity of the traveling group that the company led with them by the Imagineering team decided to cluster spaces that featured the most convenient way for those traveling groups 
to be able to to move. So I'll give you an example. You've had a great day on on shore excursion, whatever. You've boarded, whatever. You're in your cabin. Everybody's getting dressed for dinner, right? Dinner's first, show second. I'll just make it up. So everybody's dressed. Uh, you've cajoled the kids to come out of, of the, the kids' room. We're having a family dinner tonight. So everybody's together, right? So you travel down on one of the elevators. And the cool thing about the Triton is that every single accessible space to every different age group is now accessible by one of the elevator banks. That does not exist in any of the other ships at all. So you go down to dining together. At the end of dining, what typically happens is that kids go to kids programming, adults go and do something that the adults do. They go to a show, they go to a movie, they'll watch a game show, they'll do something like that. So the dining is now condensed in a, in a zone together. So as soon as you're done with dining, it's either a very quick elevator trip, or in the case of, of the main dining on deck three, that's right by the atrium there, you literally walk out and your kids slide down to kids programming in two. So now that you are separated from your children, they're having a blast. You could either A, go up a deck to four where there are uh, plenty of space for game shows, for uh, bar lounges, for comedy clubs, for movies, or you stay on deck three and you wander into the zone where there is lounge space, there is shopping space, etc. On dream and fantasy specifically, to get to the kids space, you had to go all the way back up and all the way down on deck five. And then from there, you had to go to another deck and all the way aft to the zone. And then if you wanted to then gather your kids again and then go to the show, you were reversing that and walking all the way forward to the show. So in the configuration on Triton, all of that is condensed within a very tight kind of circle. The other thing is, is if you wanted to go up and you wanted to have a Cove Cafe experience after you drop off the kids, literally right there at the aft elevator, bam, straight up and you're in Cove Cafe, you're in someplace private. All of the adult area is now accessible by only one elevator where on both Dream and Fantasy, even though it says 18 only, you've got a public elevator on the forward side and you have families going through there all day long. That doesn't bother me. I've got four kids. I get it. I even have a grandchild now. But some people are like, I want my me time. And I've got running, jumping, excited, happy families with kids running through a space that I paid a lot for to enjoy 18 only. So I think that that was a fundamental uh, challenge within that design that the the new ships sought to solve. I think that's brilliant. My favorite is actually the placement of the kids club. I think the placement of the kids club, taking it off of deck five, putting it down on deck two with the slide entrance. I mean, all of that is brilliant, but I also think- It was a hard sell. Yeah, I think the kids club on the wish is is literally the best kids club I've ever seen in my entire life. So, so Theron, I want to take us back to something you said earlier in the show. Uh, I want to rewind us back to the magic class ships for a second. You mentioned there are people out there and count us among them. We love the wonder. The wonder is one of our <laughs> uh, other favorite ships in the fleet, especially if you're just sailing adults. My favorite it's ship. An amazing, amazing ship. People love the intimacy of those ships and the size of those ships. And you, you, you mentioned they're, they are at end of life for most other cruise lines. They would have been sold down market at this point. I totally understand why Disney doesn't get rid of them because of the one amount of love they have, but two, it can be hard given the really deep brand design they have in those ships to sell them off to another cruise line. Like it, it yeah. would be really no jarring to see that. that. Yeah. yeah. So they got to keep them around yeah. for at least a while. We know the magic's going into dry dock here pretty soon, but the cruise lines seem to be marching towards bigger, 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 bigger. 
And yeah. we've seen, you know, magic class to dream class to, you know, Triton class or wish class, depending on how they want to describe it today. Do you think there's a possibility that, you know, as those ships continue to age, that Disney might say, we need to, we need to build a more intimate set of ships to have in the, the fleet. We can't just do the big, big, big ships. Do you, do you foresee a world in which we get some newer ships out of Disney that are smaller? It's a, it's a very interesting trend, right? Because if you, at the time that the, the team, the company was uh, in this design effort and, and working on the the new ships. There was uh, something interesting that happened, and it happened with one of our design uh, firms that that we had hired in to help us with this. Was responsible for this design. Ritz Carlton launched their yacht line. Right, I think there's two or maybe three of them. It's very low passenger count, and it literally is a, a like a large yacht. Um, I want to say 600 people, but I, that may even be too many. I think may only be like 200. It's a very small, very intimate, very chic, uh, very luxurious kind of experience. And and when that happened, I remember quite a lot of discussion in-house that was talking about that, right? Because there's another trend that is uh, Royal Caribbean's Oasis of the Sea, right? You've got, I don't know, 10,000 people or whatever it is. And it's like a gigantic floating mall. And a lot of the choices that they made in that ship was to go away from a nautical experience where everything on the Disney Cruise Line is nautical, right? There's It's always reminding you that even though you may not be able to see the ocean inside this space, whatever space you're in, there there attempts to be some reference to this nautical voyage that you're on because that was the choice that you made. Other cruise lines have decided not to do that. So it's interesting. There was two trends going on, bigger and bigger ships, Pan X class, they call them, and then smaller and smaller, more luxurious ships, uh, Seabourn, Crystal Cruise, um, uh, Azamara, uh, River Cruises. I mean, there's some really great smaller experience ships that were happening. So I know there was quite a lot of discussion about that. I don't know if the company's committed to do that or not, but I think my personal opinion is it would be foolish not to do that. Um, one of the things that was another big trend was luxury in in cruising. And um, it wasn't just luxury cruise lines where you're, you know, regal cruises, for example, you're dropping 20 grand a person just to sail on those. And they still, my pet peeve with that was you're still there with ketchup and mustard squeeze bottles on the outside. You know, I'm like, I paid 20 <laughs> grand to sail with you. I want to see a little teeny mustard that I crack open with a spoon. What are you, what are you doing here? Um, sorry, I digress. So what you're seeing on a lot of cruise lines, um, celebrities, He's done this quite well. Even NCL with their Haven class has done this quite well, where they've um, they've instituted a luxury class. Now Disney Cruise Line did that. They took the Walt and Roy suite level and uh, and did that uh, that level. Then they went up to another level where there was a uh, a two story kind of suite that was there. And then the team went even further and did the funnel suite. Again, you guys are really familiar with sailing. If you if you go to Remy's, you know for example, you'll see that they offer truffles and they offer Wagyu steak and they offer Remy Martin shots for $1,500. And and the reality is that those upgrades, they're sold out every single cruise. Oh, yeah. Concierge is always sold out. Yeah. It's clearly obvious that there's a luxury class that enjoys sailing on a larger ship like that where they can bring their family to, especially parents of millennials that have kids, right? Uh, they're probably footing the bill for the whole family. The kids and the grandkids, they're going to stay down there, but I'm in the, you know, I'm in the Walton Roy suite kind of thing. And, and you see that a lot. So I, I answer the question by saying, I think that the demographics have proven that there is a 100% need for a luxury category in the 
DCL world, and that could easily be accomplished with a much smaller vessel. And you can do a lot with smaller vessels. You can sail the Amazon. You know, you can do you can do a lot of really neat things um, from an itinerary perspective that you couldn't do with big ships. And and I just say luxury because it's a smaller experience. Undoubtedly, it would be more expensive. But I I'm sure Disney would, if they were to do something like that, would figure out the way to do it so it was accessible by as many people as they could. What well, we would be remiss if we didn't talk for a second about the fact that not only does Disney have to design ships, but they have to design some ports of call here, notably Castaway Key and <laughs> uh, and Lighthouse Point. I, I, I will not ask you for particulars around Lighthouse Point, which is coming. And uh, we are, Sam and I are both looking forward to trying to get on an early itinerary to Lighthouse Point to see what that's like. What is it like designing those land-based experiences? Because you could imagine a company like Disney saying, we got a lot of theme park horsepower behind us. We got two ports of call. Let's put, a, let's put some attractions in there. But they went a very different direction. They're very connected into place. They're very understated. They are not perfect day at Coco Cay. And so I'm just curious, like what goes into that <laughs> design that. thinking? What, what, what does that, how, how do you think about designing those experiences in a way that evokes the Disney brand? But I would say is some of the most understated branding that I've seen, you know, th- at Disney. Well, I, I, I would put it in the category of one of the the greatest benefits of taking a Disney cruise is that all those wonderful ports of call. Um, I think one of the coolest things that we ever did as a family with Disney Cruise Line is to sail internationally with Disney because you get all of the amazing, wonderful destinations like St. Petersburg. And we we flew to Moscow um, many years ago and we did that. And Estonia and the Baltic, you get that whole feeling and you get the, the real exotic feel of being in those ports of call during the day. But you have the safety of the brand and the embrace of the culture that you're most familiar with when you reboard the ship. So that that kind of experience is great. And that's synonymous with cruising. So Disney, I believe, took the perspective. These are my words, not, not the company's word, but I think they took the perspective of if there's a port of call in any one of the itineraries that we do that we get control of, we Disney, it should be the most Disney, the most cool, um, the, the, the best port of call that you could go to. Now that said, you, I want to take you back to the, the, the thing that I, the point that I mentioned about the psychology. It's understanding the psychology of the guests. Um, there's a lot of escapism as a core need for why you would vacation. Certainly a core need as to why people would cruise because it's, you're not even on land anymore. You're in a foreign quote unquote environment that most people don't don't, they're not on all day, right? You're on water, you're in different countries, you're in different cities. So when you go to the Castaway Key or what will, what Lighthouse Point will become, it truly is this tropical, it has to embody the broad imaginations that our 20, you know, our 21st century audience needs to understand or, or uh, it needs to represent what they believe that is. That's all the way from um, Rogers and Hammerstein, South Pacific, all the way through to Moana. You know, it, it has to embody what are what the Disney guests have psychologically built in their mind as a tropical escape. And then you have to overlay that with a light touch of Disney. Because remember, the ship is giving you the heavy lift on the Disney brand. So when you step off the ship, really all you want is sand, sea, and fun. You want this adventure. You want the the promise of a safe place for your kids where they have slides and fun activities and things. And you want a peaceful lagoon with the most blue water you've ever seen in your life. If you want to just lay there and hear nothing but the wind, 
you've earned that right. That's a big part of the Disney Island experience is not to be too commercial. It was really to play up the natural aspects of that location and let them do the heavy lifting uh, before the experience with a light touch and a reminder that only Disney could deliver it this way. Uh, one of the coolest things about Lighthouse Point that I will say, because we did a, my team did a lot of the early investigation of the island. We work with, I don't know if this is widely known, but work with Joe Rohde on the original mm-hmm. sort of master plan and layout of the island. A really good friend of mine is doing all the art direction work on that now. Well, the coolest features of that space is to me, it feels more like um, something that you'd find in the Mediterranean. It it ha- it has more, I don't know, you can, you can go look at it now, the island, if you go to Google Earth, but it has like limestone, kind of like cliffs. It, it feels like Malta. It, it doesn't feel to me Caribbean. And I love that fact that it's such a different natural environment than Castaway, but they're, but they're, they're sister experiences in a sense, because it's all in the Bahamas. Um, I love that fact. And I think that our guests are going to, uh, I say our guests, I think the Disney guests are going to absolutely love the differentiation of those two spaces and being able to kind of enjoy two different natural settings that have just a kiss of Disney on them. You can still take a picture with Mickey, Minnie, you know, <laughs> right. Fab Five plus Stitch usually on the island if you want to. So, <laughs> yeah. I will say we've interviewed a lot of guests on this show who've taken Disney cruises and I have not yet heard from a single guest who said Castaway K was off. Like everyone loves that stop. <laughs> everyone looks forward to that stop. So I can only imagine Lighthouse Point is going to is going to be just as great. And I know we, as I said, we're looking forward to sailing there. But one, one of the hardest jobs that, that we did uh, on the project, just a, a one more story quickly, was uh, we, we took a look at Castaway Key and master planned it uh, from the perspective of we, we basically had to answer the question, what if we had two ships stop there at the same time, which is a very real possibility. Um, and, and there's a lot of exploration that Imagineering does with, like that for the company all over the world. Imagineering manages all the property that the company owns worldwide. So that was a really fun exploration of thinking of how that could work, how you could master plan the island differently. And ultimately, the company decided not to go in that direction. I'm very thankful uh, because that would have gone a long way to kind of ruining some of that peace on the island. And I think you mentioned Coco K. (laughs) It would be a little (laughs) bit more like that, which is totally outside of the Disney brand. (laughs) <laughs> well, Theron, we did not prepare you for what is to now to come, but uh, we have reached that point in our show where I'm going to hand you over to Sam for some random questions with a dash of judgment or the round we call rapid fire. So Sam, take it away. All right. So I am going to ask you some favorites. And, you know, there might be a little bit of judgment as Brian has has warned you, <laughs> but who is your favorite Disney or Pixar character? Random uh, rapid fire, I'd say Bob Parr, Mr. Incredible. Oh, love it. All oh, right. Nice. What is your favorite Disney or Pixar or whatever Disney property movie? I'm probably going to default to The Incredibles. All right. Okay, now we're going to move on to the cruise line. Again, your personal favorite. So this can't violate any kind of confidentiality. Um, sure. What is your favorite Disney Cruise Line stage show? Uh, Frozen on the Wonder. Oh, yes. So good. That's a good one. Okay, favorite adult bar space on any of the four original ships. I only say this because I know you have not sailed as a passenger on the Wish. The bar that is uh, at the very top on the fantasy between... Oh, Meridian? Yes, Meridian. Thank you so much. The Meridian yes, bar. Between Paulo and, and, and Remy. And That's... Remy. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Fantastic. One of fantastic our favorites space. as well. Yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> How favorite if you can't remember the name. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that's why it's your favorite. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say, if the drinks are good, then the name is, you know, inconsequential. I just know where it's, I just know where it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know how to get there. That's the I know how to get there. Favorite rotational dining restaurant. Um, I would have to say Tiana's Place. Yes, that's oh, the right yeah. answer. You have you. I don't even have to ask you the rest of the questions. You've already won rapid fire, <laughs> but I, I will anyway. Favorite onboard activity? Probably, I would have to say spa. Yeah, that's a good one. That's very different than if when my kids were young, it would be a different answer. But probably now, spa. Favorite space to relax on the ship, not including the spa. A uh, Cove Cafe for sure. Favorite port? Let's go with Venice. Ooh, that's a good one. Favorite that's port. That's a good one. All right. It was between that or maybe Dubrovnik, but I like Venice. Remy versus Paulo. Uh, Remy. Aqua Dunk versus Aqua Duck. Uh, Aqua Duck. Favorite ship. That's easy. Um, and and these are jaded because I obviously worked on them, but um, uh, the Wonder for me is my favorite ship. Okay, now my last question is going to be a little different than what I usually ask our guests because of the unique background you have. I want to ask you bucket list imagineering experience, meaning if you today could design a space on a brand new Disney ship, what kind of space would you love to design? It's it's a little bit of a carryover from what we did at Disney Springs. I'm a one of my favorite projects in the whole world was Jock Lindsay's Hangar Bar. It's the coolest thing ever being able to work on the world's only Indiana Jones themed bar. If if I were to do anything on a ship that I think would be really successful and you could really only do it on a Disney ship because of the story and theme, it would be a speakeasy bar that had secret entrances and um I would I would love that. I think that would be so cool. And you could you could theme that in a million and a half different ways. And I think there's a, a group of guests that would absolutely love that. Yeah. Amazing. We would be obsessed with that. I would also be obsessed with the idea of any kind of like Disney themed escape room experience on a ship. Not, you know, not a just a escape room from land and plug it into a ship, yeah. but really one that's, you know, Disney immersive. So, yeah. all right. Well, that's the end of rapid fire. It, there was not a lot of judgment because I liked <laughs> really all of your answers. So, so as I said, congratulations, you win. Um, <laughs> Yay. There are no, there are yes. no prizes except uh, the admiration you get from myself. <laughs> that is the prize enough. That is prize enough. <laughs> Theron, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you have actually a Facebook group and it sounds like there's a book that you're working on with uh, someone else. And I wanted to give you a chance to sort of plug both of those things uh, if you care to. Absolutely. I don't I don't do a whole lot uh, on my Facebook page, much to my chagrin, uh, just because my consulting business has gotten so so busy. Um, I have a YouTube channel. Um, I have mostly students and young professionals that visit that because I do a lot of talking about uh, how to do a lot of this stuff. Um, Instagram and of course, LinkedIn is probably where I'm the most active if anybody's interested. The website and Facebook, it's actually a Facebook group. There's a website that I have. It's called uh, How how does Disney do that? And that's uh, between myself and my partner, who is actually just a fan who reached out to me and we began talking and pretty soon it was like, this this could be a fantastic book. So we kind of worked on that. He is heading that up and loves to get 
stories from guests and and professionals in the field um, because uh, that's that's kind of one of those things that uh, that we want to contain in the book. So, but thanks for the opportunity to plug that. I have the really great fortune of starting my own company in uh, 2020 that launched, and I took all of that knowledge of working in the Disney park systems uh, and 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 Imagineering and all of that pixie dust, and have a real blast right now consulting with firms and governments and developers um, and investors all over the world in a in a wide variety of business segments. And it's so much fun to talk about building experiences in completely non-traditional uh, environments and helping people to uh, these leaders to understand how their businesses can grow in a very unique way if you think about them as an experience as opposed to a product and a customer or a service and a customer. So that's that's been a really fun life after Disney. We can't wait to see what comes of your of your book project, and uh, we'll be reading it once it comes out for sure. But <laughs> for now, Theron, I just want to thank you for coming on and spending some time with us and sharing your thoughts with our listeners. We really, really appreciate it. It is my pleasure. Talking about what you love is a joy. So um, I hope that your listeners learn some new things, and if anything, that they were super entertained. A big thank you to all of you out there for listening this week. We really, really appreciate it. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep getting great content from the DCL Duo each week. We'd also love it if you'd head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. If you hit those five stars, that's great. If you leave us a written review along with a five-star review, we will be sure to read it on the air at the end of one of our main episodes. If you're hovering over anything less than five stars, we really want you to reach out to us so we can take your feedback. Best way to do that, head to dclduo.com to find all all the ways to connect with us. It links to our podcast, our vlog, our blog, has all the ways you can connect with us on social media, has our Etsy store where you can find our fun beach bags and magnets that we designed as enthusiasts of each of the Disney Cruise Line ships, has a link off to our Patreon. If you'd like to help support the show, we really truly appreciate each and every one of our Patreons for helping to support the show each and every month, has a link off to our show sponsor, My Path Unwinding, where you can get more information about booking a fabulous vacation, which also really helps to support our show. All the things are there, including a way you can sign up to be a guest on the show if you'd like to share your Disney Cruise Line experience. Most importantly, you can always email us at dclduo at gmail.com if you'd like to connect with us, or you can call our voicemail line if you'd like to leave us a message. We love to include the voices of our listeners in our show. Just dial 402-413-5590. That's 402-413-5590. And that will head straight to our Google Voice voicemail line. The DCL Duo podcast is not affiliated with Disney Cruise Line, the Disney Company, or the Disney family of theme parks. The views expressed on the show are solely those of the individuals on the podcast and in no way reflect the views of the Disney Company or Disney Cruise Line. If you have questions about a Disney cruise or a Disney vacation, please contact Disney directly or your own travel agent or the great folks over at My Path Unwinding Travel. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time for another fabulous Disney adventure with a DCL duo. Good night. <laughs>